Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, January 17th, 2021, we continue our new series titled Biblical Worldview. Today's sermon, Worldview Prologue, will be taught to us by Pastor Jeff Stevens. Enjoy. Life is nothing but a series of sequential moments. Every single moment has the same singular purpose in design. Will you glorify God in that moment? We'll see if today's message holds true to that as we dig into his word. I know that for many of us, we are filled with all kinds of anxiety and fear and things that are going on in our society, things that are going on in our culture, things that are going on in our country. I think that for most of us, we can safely say, I am less than satisfied with all that is going on. And it's not anything to do with the politics. It has everything to do with the human nature and the human behavior that is being seen globally. I think that we have a better and a bigger God than to join in with the rhetoric and the disgust that is going on in our nation. Our worldview today is filled with anxiety. But I can't help but talk about the three social spheres that God has made. Let me say that again. God has made three social spheres. His word tells us about the family and that God designed and made the family. He made a father, a mother, and children. He also made the church where Jesus is the head of that church. He appoints overseers or elders. And then the rest of us as members of that church, universal, are ambassadors. And then there is our government. And in our particular country, we have the executive, the judicial, and the legislative branches. But each of these are appointed by God. Each of them has their own social sovereignty. And each of them is designed for a specific function and a specific role. They partake in the socialization of the world. The government is here to condone that which is good and to punish that which is evil. The family is here to raise and rear children in the admonition of the Lord. And the church is to proclaim the truth of God's word in love and in kindness and in compassion any one of these things as they change tend to distract us from those functions and those roles. Our worldview has a direct impact on that. And let me say again, as Thomas I think brought up last week, everyone has a worldview. Everyone. It may not be a biblical worldview, but you have a worldview. If worldviews or meta-narratives, meta-narratives are just these uh, stories of how to live one's life, can be compared to lenses, as Thomas did last week, through maybe the glasses or the goggles or the safety goggles to which we're working through life, the question then becomes, which of them brings the sharpest focus of a worldview? Thomas concluded last week that the authority and the sufficiency of God's word is that lens. We'll continue on in that subject here today. But I want you to know that when you engage in scripture, scripture is often portrayed by people as an irrational retreat from reason. 
Rather, Scripture is about grasping a deeper order of things, a more efficient, more effective understanding of truth. But oftentimes the human mind is more easily accessed through imagination rather than reason. Our tendency is to default towards these things of imagination. We tend to focus on the what could be rather than the what is. I love reason and logic. I was recently sitting with my grandson, he's two, on the sofa. And I pointed down at his, at his shoe and I asked him, I said, buddy, what is that? And he says, it's a shoe. I said, what's inside the shoe? He looks at me and he says, a sock. Hmm. Well, what's in the sock? A foot. I said, well, then what's in the foot? He thinks for a minute, he looks at me and he says, blood. If he'd have gone into capillaries and white blood cells and red blood cells, I'd have called the media, right? That would be incredible. But even at two, he's using reason and logic. Now, I don't accredit this to my gene pool. I accredit this to just him making gracious observations. Even the television shows in which he watches, one in particular sings this song. This is the tail end of the song. It says, there was a bird, the prettiest bird, the prettiest bird that you ever did see. And the bird in the egg, and the egg in the nest, and the nest in the branch, and the branch in the tree, and the tree in the hole, and the hole in the ground, and the green grass grows all around and around, and the green grass grows all around. Reason and logic. And you're welcome. That'll be stuck in your head all day. But when it comes to reason and logic, right, we have to back up and recognize every worldview has to bring together reason and faith. Every worldview has to bring together reason and faith. It has to show a reasoned beginning. And that reasoned beginning has to be true all the way through to the end. When we look at the word is, the word is is an indicative of the word be. So what is shall also be. There can't be a separation from these because truth is in fact truth. If it's true today, it'll be true tomorrow because truth is truth. The challenge for some is, why do we think this way? Some of you may be sitting there today saying, man, this is just too heady, too academic, too whatever. Why do I even need to sit here and think about this kind of stuff? It's not an intellectual exercise. But it is a revelation of truth. It's a way of life. Our function, right, how we go through life in this world is to be an image bearer of the one true God. To live our life in the form of the gospel. Our functionality is to be an image bearer. Our form is to live through the gospel. It is our influence to those three social spheres. And it hopefully is the influence of the three social spheres to all people. 
But there's something that happens to us. We're lured. We're lured and enticed is what James says in James 1.14. And we're lured and enticed by our own desire. Because our desire is to fluctuate somewhere around what could be rather than deal with what is. The challenge for us is to not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed through the renewing of your mind. Today is not an intellectual exercise. It's about the expansion of our mind and our trust in the truth of God's word. And what does it say? I'll say this about God's word. I find it difficult to comprehend. In fact, I'm not sure that I have the ability to comprehend it. What I can do is apprehend it. I can apprehend that which what it says. And we'll look at what it says today. Let's just pray before we jump into this word. Our Father and our God, Lord, we thank you. Lord, we praise you. We worship and adore you. We come that in your power you would reveal truth to us. That your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts to transform us into the image of yourself. That we would live life as an image bearer. Sharing the love and the compassion of the gospel with all that we would encounter. Help us, Lord, here today to grow in your grace and a greater understanding of your Son. Amen. All worldviews have to answer these questions. You have to answer the question, where did we come from? You have to answer the question, what is my purpose in life? You have to answer the question, what determines right from wrong? And you have to answer the question, what is life after death? These are the big four questions we're going to attempt to answer today based upon God's word. Not based upon an opinion, but an apprehension of what God's word says. I remember as I was raising my own kids, there was this time when my kids would start to crawl. And as they would crawl, they'd gravi they would gravitate towards, uh, typically towards plugs or anything electrical. And as they work their way towards it, you begin to say those things, no touch, hot. And you think to yourself, I'm giving great words of wisdom to this toddler. No touch, hot. The problem is, is that this child, this toddler, has no concept or cognitive thought of the concept of hot. They're learning based upon the authority that is before them. We know how that learning goes, right? Those of us who have gone through the teenage years of rearing and raising kids, right, we know how that goes as they crawl towards something hot and you've left the room, right? As every sin begins, right? Here's them. And then they touch it. I don't know what they're talking about. There's nothing wrong with this thing. I don't know what hot is, but it ain't hot. Ah, teething comes along. Mom's car keys. Walking around, gnawing on those things. Back to the outlet. Hopefully 110, not 120, or 220, right? <laughs> They come back. They've now experienced hot. 
And they begin the process of learning like an adult learns, by experience. It's amazing that God's word says to us that we're supposed to have a childlike faith, to trust in the authority of God's word, not your experience. It's important that we understand that in life, we are to be childlike in our faith and we should experience the authority of God's word rather than make choices or decisions upon the experience of what I see or feel. Some of those auto retorts that are associated with would be like the statement, it could be, I feel that, well I believe, these are all statements of subjectivity. If someone says, let me tell you what it is, it is what it is, this is what it is, that is a recognition of truth. That is childlike learning. What is just simply is. It's crazy to resist that which is. But yet as Romans 1 tells us, people suppress the truth and they replace the truth with a lie. For they're unwilling to even look at what is. Wishing or wanting doesn't change what is. You can't go and jump off a building or a bridge and then begin your debate with gravity. It is what it is. Praying, in fact, doesn't change what actually is. Praying reveals ultimately what will be. It reveals to us God's plan, his purpose, what he's doing, what he set out before the foundation of the world to do. You see, it's about living in the present tense. Each moment has the same singular purpose and design. Will I be faithful to glorify God in this moment? And I do that by using the reality, the truth of what is. You see, if I'm filled with anxiety and fear today, fear of COVID, fear of our government, fear of everything, then in fact the fear that I'm feeling is void of that which is. God is in control. God is the one who is sovereign. It's what is. It's about living in the present. And it's not about the could be's. And I'm not saying that you can't have aspirations of what could be. The Bible even talks about that, that it's noble for a person to aspire to the position of elder or overseer. It could be. I remember in a lot of premarital counseling that my wife and I have done, we deal with people that are engaged and they start to pretend that they're married. You're not married. Yeah, but God, God brought this person to me. You're still not married. The perceived will of God is that this is in fact your spouse. The decreed will of God will ultimately be revealed at the moment you say I do and the pastor pronounces you husband and wife. That's what is. Thomas spoke last week about the ultimate authority of scripture. Scripture is in fact an ethic. It's how things ought to be. And the ethic of God's word is ultimately what determines that which is morality, that which is. 
Our worldview discussions are not about convincing, convicting, or converting people. This isn't a class on how to win people to Christ. This is, in fact, a sermon on how to live your life under the eyes of a holy God. One of the big problems we have in our life is that we like to swim in God's swim lane, thinking that I'm here to convince and convert and convict people, to judge them. I am not. If Christ didn't come to this world to condemn it, then why do I think it's my job? If Christ came to serve, then why am I not serving? I have to deal with what is. It's about being faithful to glorify God in his truth and his truth about what is. Like I said, every worldview has to bring together reason and faith. Our point one today deals with origin. You're filling the blank if you're following along that is origin. Where did we come from? God answers this question in the first 10 words of scripture. In Genesis 1.1, he says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That Hebrew word there for created is the word bere. This word means function and form. He not only created the function of the world, he created the form of it. We don't enter into building buildings without first considering both function and form. How's the building going to be used? We'll ultimately determine the form. God created both function and form. And although the book is not a science book, it does validate science. It says right there, in the beginning, time, God created the heavens, space, and the earth, matter. Time, space, matter. Right in the first 10 words. But it also tells us in Psalm 19:1 the reason for his creation. God reveals himself through creation. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Creation itself points to God's existence and ultimately our responsibility. It addresses the could-be's. It addresses the people who want a different answer than what is. In Romans 1.20, it says, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. It's been perceived in the things that have been made. So they, humanity, are without excuse. You see, the word of God by itself merely condemns. It leaves us without an excuse as to why we haven't been following a holy and sovereign God. It also, God spoke the world into existence. This is incredible. Psalm 33, six and nine say this, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. 
What an incredible entrance. And we might ask the question, through whom did God create all things? Well, in John 1.3, it says Jesus did. It says, through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. This is powerful. It's not an intellectual retreat. You'll see, ultimately, that it follows logic and reason. And it is the truth because the word of God is the truth. And as children of God, we listen to the authority of him. My experience might lead me down another path, but his truth is the truth. It leads us to our point two in question, purpose. What is my purpose in life? I know that this is, an inter- this is a little off story, but imagine, if you would, that you were invited to Buckingham Palace. That you were going to go and spend the entire day with the queen and the royal family. What an event. You're going to go in and sit in the lap of luxury. You're going to be entertained. You're going to be served. Everything's going to take place, and it will be an incredible moment in time for you. You and your spouse or you and your loved one are heading back to the hotel after leaving and pulling out of Buckingham Palace. You want to know what you're not talking about? You're not talking about the butler. Why would you talk about the butler? But yet the butler touched everything in that entire day for you. The butler made sure that even your silverware was spaced. You want to know what the measurement of the royal household is for the silverware from the edge of the table next to the plate? The butler's finger to his middle knuckle. The butler touches everything. The butler assures that the landscape is done, that the entrance to which you came in is clean and well-kempt. The butler is the one who makes sure that the time of your life took place, but most importantly, the butler assured that in that day, you would only see the majesty of Her Royal Highness. Brothers and sisters, your purpose in life, you're the butler. I'm the butler. I serve at the will of the King of Kings. And everything is about His Majesty. Everything. It's my purpose. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that God created man and that He created him for His glory. And therefore, the ultimate purpose of man, according to the Bible, is simply to glorify God. Psalm 19.1, as we read earlier, says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And our job is to point everyone to that, to the beauty of our God. We fulfill our purpose of glorifying God by living our lives in relationship and faithful service to him. And since God created man in his own image, man's purpose, of course, cannot be fulfilled apart from him. If I bear his image, then he must be included in my plans. And my plans are his plans. In fact, it's not even a fair question to ask, what is my purpose? 
My purpose is irrelevant. It would be better to ask the question, what is God's purpose for my life? For that's the plan that we'll go through. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says to us, then God said, let us make man in our own image, this triune God in our own image, and after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over, every, and over all the earth and, uh, and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created bere, function and form, man in his own image. In, his, in the image of God, he created bere, him. And he created him male and female, he created him. Bere, function and form. Our function is our nature, the natural role for which we are to be. Our form is the role of who we are. Romans 1, 26, 27 tells us the output of a sinful and fallen world. It tells us that women will exchange the natural, the functional relations of those that are contrary to the nature and the man likewise will leave the natural function or relationship of the woman for the unnatural function of the man. The form and function of humanity is not what the world wants to make it to be. The function and the form of them is in fact their relationship and their complementarianism to each other. Because he created them both in the image of himself. The more we get to know our creator and the more that we love him, and the better we understand who we are and what our purpose is to glorify him, then we grow in his grace and we grow in a better understanding of who his son is. And we live our lives wholeheartedly unto him. Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are his workmanship. I love that word there. It's the word poema. We are his poem created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. This is our calling, to live out the poem that God wrote about you. Our third point in question is morality. Where does morality come from? What determines right and wrong? It's important we answer this question in a worldview. When you're talking with a, a friend or a colleague or someone who proclaims to be an atheist, what determines right and wrong? Where did that come from? I can tell you at the heart of it is conflict management. As the one who does a lot of the counseling around here at the Highlands, I would be saying that I don't not experience conflict management. Let me tell you how every conflict enters my office. It starts with an exaggeration of what's happening to them. And it's followed up with a minimization of their personal responsibility in the conflict. The conversation of the conflict starts like this. And then when you talk to the other person, it goes like this. And the fight is on. But see, that conflict isn't the biggest problem. The problem is evil. The problem of pain. The problem of suffering. 
our culture is so hung up these days, right? Today, this weekend is Martin Luther King weekend. Our culture is hung up on the issue of systemic racism. Calling out systemic racism isn't going to nearly be far enough. You're not going far enough. If you're calling out systemic racism, you're not going far enough into the discussion. The discussion is that racism is a symptom of systemic evil. We live in a fallen world. It doesn't make any of those things right. It validates God's word that they are in fact wrong. And they're wrong because of systemic evil. And we might find ourselves asking, how can an all-powerful, all-sovereign, and all-good God allow so much pain and suffering in the world? I think it's said best by Joseph to his brothers, his brothers that sold him into slavery in Genesis 50, 20, when he says, what you, what you did for evil, God meant for good. You see, nothing can thwart the hand of God. Not our sinful nature looking over both shoulders as we willfully disobey. God doesn't look from his throne and say, man, I didn't see that coming. No, here's what is. God is in complete control. And even though systemic evil exists, and we should make every attempt we can to run it out of this grand garden called the world, we should make it gone. But the only way that that's going to happen is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It will come no other way. People must see you as different, a person filled with compassion and love, not a condemner of their sexual orientation, but a person who loves Christ and is willing to look at a person and not judge them because they sin differently than you. But to fill them with the mercies of God's grace. How can there be a good God in a world which plays host to such suffering. You see, when we acknowledge the presence of good and evil in the world, we are citing that there is such a thing as a moral law. We do this to differentiate between good and evil. The very nature of good and evil cannot be defined without a moral law or a standard. I can't determine that which is good or that which is evil unless I have a standard. You cannot cite a moral law without a moral lawgiver. Someone had to make the standard. Many try to disprove God by insisting that he could not feasibly exist considering the tremendous suffering in the world. That argument contradicts itself. You can't say that there's an evil and not say that there's not a standard. You can't say that there's not a standard and not say that there is a lawgiver. If there's no God, then there's no moral law. So how do you define then, therefore, good and evil? It is often argued that the overarching moral law guides our behavior and defines what we believe to be right and wrong. The question would be, but has this evolved with time? 
Has it gotten better? Are we becoming more moral as our modern culture develops? If you believe that we have progressed morally, why is it that the 20th century we killed more people in warfare than all of the previous 19 centuries combined? If we're growing in this morality, why would we be killing more? You see, the temptation that came in the Garden of Eden, we read the accounts of it in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. The idea of violating the authority of God, the goal was becoming autonomous. Well, you look at our culture today, boy, we've really become autonomous. People can identify as anything they want, make broad proclamations, Right, if we get to do that, then I'm going to walk into every clothing store and tell people I'm a medium. <laughs> and it's ridiculous because it's not what is. You look at this society, this idea of violating the authority of God by becoming autonomous and blaming everything on everyone and everything else. You don't understand. I yell because I'm Italian. What? <laughs> no, Jeff, you, you don't understand. You weren't raised in the household I was raised in. Who cares? Are you not responsible for what is? You see, this is actually what's been perpetually plaguing our society since the fall of man. Genesis 3, 11 and 12, God confronts Adam and Eve. He says, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Then the man said, in all his brilliance, and all his wisdom, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate it. I love the minimization of confrontation through minimizing his responsibility in this and exaggerating what the woman has done. Adam, you ate it. You were told not to. It is what it is. Our pattern is to evict God, to elevate ourselves, and to blame others when things go so terribly wrong. We tend not to believe in absolutes. We desire autonomy through individual desire. The heart of man was described by God early on in Genesis 6, 5. He says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So who defines what good means? How can you really know if you're a good person? You see, without a standard of goodness, the answer would at best be subjective, not objective. We're using terms that can only be self-defined. If I believe goodness is purely an individual definition, then I would have to extend individual definition to every single human being. And at best we would have is an amalgamation of individuals who think that this is good, but this is bad. It's the world that we're more or less living in today. 
You see, under this particular worldview, everything can be seen as good and everything can be seen as bad. And in its own way, this is what leads to absolute chaos and destruction and crazed extreme thoughts. It leaves me wanting to answer the question, what is life after death? What is our destiny? If you're filling in the blank, it's destiny. What is life after death? Exactly what happens to us after we die? Does everyone go to the same place? Or do we go to different places? Is there really a heaven? Is there really a hell? You see, the existence of life after death is a universal question. Job was asking the question in Job 14. He said, a man born of a woman is of a few days and full of trouble. He springs up like a flower and withers away. Like a fleeting shadow, he does not endure. If a man dies, will he live again? You see, although we will all be eventually resurrected, not everyone will in fact go to heaven. Hebrews 9.27 tells us, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. This judgment is a determinant plan as to where you will spend eternity. Hell, like heaven, is not simply a state of existence, but a literal place, or as I like to say, like Phoenix, but hotter. <laughs> it's a place where the unrighteous will experience never-ending eternal wrath of God. In hell, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This indicates intense grief and anger and sorrow. Matthew 13, 42, he says to us, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Don't let anyone ever tell you that hell is a place that is void or absent of God. Hell is a place that is filled with the wrath of God. God's presence through his character attribute of wrath. Our God is a consuming fire. He desires to have an intimate personal relationship with you. And life on earth is merely the test. Your final test will in fact be death. But for those whose faith is in him, you will not taste it. It will have no sting, and it will have no victory. But this preparation will determine where we spend eternity. For believers, life after death is eternal life in heaven with God, and for unbelievers, life after death is eternity in hell with the wrath of God. John 3:36 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Here's what they're going to see. The wrath of God remains on him. You see, our eternal destination is revealed in our earthly lifetime. 
It was determined before the foundation of the world. And the perceived will of God, if you sit here today in faith, is that you will be saved and you will live in all eternity. But I can tell you that the decreed will of God will be determined at the moment you enter into the kingdom of him himself. We call this the already, but the not yet. I am already saved, but not quite yet. The good news of the gospel is that if salvation is upon me, I cannot lose it, for nothing can separate me from the love of God. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Talking about in the world today. Now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. The pouty lip and the I didn't know that you gave as an excuse as a toddler when you touched the little electric outlet is not the satisfaction that God is looking for. Your ignorance won't bypass him. The only thing is a faith that is in him and in him alone. We start to realize that, so what? Every worldview has to bring together reason and faith. It has to bring the beginning from the end. It's why I say that it is the great I am that provides the most compelling and powerful answers to the questions of origin, purpose, morality, and destiny. Its teachings are logically consistent. They accurately describe the reality as it is. And they speak directly to the human condition now and after life. Without a creator, there is no standard. Without a standard, there is no purpose. Without a standard and a purpose, there is no morality. Without standard, purpose, and morality, there is no eternal destiny. As we bring the band back up to worship, I want to answer, so who is this God? When God said to Moses from the burning bush, I am who I am, he was saying in Revelation 1.8, I am the alpha and the omega. I'm the beginning from the end. Who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. When he used I am as a standalone description, he's making the ultimate statement of self-sufficiency, self-existence, and immediate presence. God's existence is not contingent upon anything else or anyone else. <coughs> His plans are not contingent upon any circumstances. His promises that he will be what he will be. He will be the eternally constant God. He stands ever-present, unchangeable, completely sufficient in himself to do what he willed to do and to accomplish what he willed to accomplish. He is the king and you are his subjects and we are his butlers to serve him and his majesty. Who is the great I am? He is creator God. He is the king of majesty. He is the truth. He will be with us in all eternity. And the only worldview that works is the gospel of Jesus Christ. To him and him alone be the glory. We have a good God. And he has laid out everything that we need to know in his word. Don't get sucked into the world. Do everything you can to love people with the gospel. To love God, to love people. 
to make disciples. As Thomas had last week, I have a couple of books, if you're looking for books around these subjects, right? The first one is Thriving in Babylon by Larry Osborne. It's out on the table out there. Um, you can purchase it at cost. Um, if you don't have enough money, I'm sure we can work something out to give it to you. But, but just uh, consider it. Larry does a great job of laying out for us what life is like in Babylon. Because we're in a modern day Babylon. The other is a book by Erwin Lutzer who is We Will Not Be Silenced. Erwin does a great job of just laying out what's going on in our society today and how the relevance of God's word is ever more needed. And of course, more of Mark's book are back that we ran out last week. And so, brothers and sisters, I apologize that I have kept you 14 minutes over. If you wouldn't mind, those of you who do have children, I know we have to give the, or maybe we don't have children out there, do we? Nah, that's good. You're fine. <laughs> so I apologize for being 14 minutes late, but not really anymore because nobody waiting on you. So, hey, our Father, may we glorify you in everything we say and do. May we be your butlers. May we serve you to your glory and to your honor. May we not back down from the truth, but to stand firm in that which is. To ignore that which could be, but to trust without anxiety or fear in what is. To know what the clarity of life is. A series of sequential moments, each with the same singular purpose in mind. Will I be faithful to glorify and exalt the King of Kings in this moment? To God be the glory. I love you guys. We'll see you next week.